minimalists. <laughs> All right, y'all. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Ryan Green, one of our favorite human beings on Earth. Uh, before we dive into our surprise questions today, and before we talk about how optimal health is real wealth, let's talk. Let's read some more about less. I have two articles here today. And uh, Doc Green, for this segment, we usually just use these articles as sort of a jump-off point. We sure. have 27 health and nutrition-based tips that are actually evidence-based. We'll get to that, but I wanted to read this article from James Altucher because I think it's yes. funny. But I also think it's funny because who was it, Kafka, who said that uh, life's most serious problems can be discussed only through jokes. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And and so. I mean, we touched on this a little bit, but I'm just going to read some bits from this. I want to know what you agree with, what you disagree with here, sure. Doc Green. Five reasons I don't go to doctors. I haven't had a checkup since I was 16 years old. I don't know how old James is. He's probably in his 50s now, right? Wow. Yeah. Not because I'm so healthy, but because doctors kill people. <laughs> 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 on paper <laughs> do you want to expand on that uh, yeah uh, on paper being a doctor seems pretty great the money is good it makes everyone around you feel inferior <laughs> money's moderate money's moderate <laughs> and you get a diploma that literally gives you permission to play God <laughs> but number five doctors hate you and they hate their lives <laughs> So this is one of the five reasons he doesn't go to doctors. Uh, on average, one doctor a day kills himself. That's about right. Despite what you hear about lawyers, doctors actually have the highest suicide rate, according to the Journal of American Medical Association. Did not know that. I thought it was dentists, but... They're doctors, right? Yeah, that's true. Mm, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Burn! Yeah, they say chiropractors. <laughs> oh! Uh, I love my chiropractor. I we love all, my we all have our place. Too. Yeah. <laughs> all right, keep going. Uh, um... It's even worse among female doctors. You think they like looking at you with your clothes off? You're disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> you think they could get in that practice just to see you naked? The suicide rate among female doctors is 2.3 times the national average. Oh, man. And the suicide rate of male doctors is 1.4 times higher. Mm. So yet another area where females are more successful than men. <laughs> um <clears throat> That's tough. Dr. Yep. Charles Reynolds, a professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and, statistically speaking, a likely suicide waiting to happen, oh my God. says, uh, here's what Dr. Reynolds says, undiagnosed and untreated depression is the culprit here with doctors. So we need, So now we need doctors just to diagnose doctors. <laughs> and why all the suicide? Why can't they just drink their problems away like normal people? A lot of them do. Yeah. And that's, well, that's, you know, yeah. That can, that I love how restrained you are, by the way, but knowing I'm that this back. is a satirical yeah. article, like that kind of helps. Well, okay. So, so you say a lot of them do, right? So number four, your doctor might be drunk. <laughs> this is the second reason he doesn't go. Uh-oh. Uh In a study done... On the American College of Surgeons, 15% of male surgeons and 26% of female surgeons suffered from alcohol abuse and dependence. Wow. That might seem super high. It might, anyway, he said that might not seem super high. Actually, yeah, it does. Yeah. A, a, a quarter of, of female uh, surgeons and 15% of male surgeons suffer from alcohol dependence. That does seem really high. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the strict definition of dependence would lump a lot of us into that oh, sure. or abuse. Um, but certainly, yeah, I mean, here's the deal. Long hours, 
a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. No one comes to a doctor because they want to talk about how great they feel. So you're mm. constantly beat down with other people's problems. And certainly at the end of the day, I've done it. The remedy that seems most fitting is something to just take the edge you. off. Yeah. Take the edge off. Yeah, dude. Um, and eventually that one cocktail probably doesn't do it as you progress through your career and you have other stresses that come in, family, etc. And and I could see the path that would lead to, you know, multi substance utilization yeah. uh, to help cope with the fact that every day is like a beat down. Yeah. And uh, especially when people the hard part is a lot of people don't want to they want help but they don't want to help themselves. Mm. And so you sit there speaking with folks trying to give them the the tools. And this kind of goes into what we're doing with Monarch is there's a study from the New England Journal of Medicine that said since the advent of evidence-based medicine, so science was, you know, proselytized to people. This is why you should do this. This is the study that proved that 50% of people that walk out of a practitioner's door will not be compliant from the second they walk out the door. Mm -hmm. So there are times I'm sitting talking to a patient and I know, or I think the second they leave, they're not going to do what I tell them. Right. So why am I spending time when I could, you know, be with a loved one or doing something that I enjoy, trying to get this person to do something they're not going to do? And That's good. That actually makes me think because his first point was your doctor might hate you, and, and I I kind of feel that way sometimes when I've gone to doctors. But to 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 be sympathetic of of the doctor is like. They often think, yeah, I I'm really good at, at complying, but I'm I'm the exception. Yeah, I, I know right. that totally. But but yeah, most people like if uh, when I've been working with Nurse Balance Thrive and, and Dr. Wood and, and and Chris Kelly over there, mm-hmm. like Chris told me like you're one of the few people who actually literally does every single thing that I say. Sure. I'm like, well, I want to get better, right? Sure, and sure. so like I'll do. You, you could tell me to do headstands and eat broccoli. I'm gonna try it. Totally. Yeah. Um, but most people are like, no, what is the pill? And honestly, that's where I was for a long time. Mm-hmm. What What is the, give me, give me the thing that kills my symptoms, but doesn't fix the problem. Well, I think like doctors being drunks and uh, the patients, 50% of the patients leaving and not doing anything. I mean, that is a symptom of the human condition of this Correct. instant gratification and looking for the easy way out. So sure. what, what really what this is telling me is that doctors suffer from all the problems that he, regular humans suffer from as well yeah, yeah doc, your doctor is not superhuman right even though i mean i'll tell you the the thing about doc green is he's like one of the few doctors i've gone to who i don't feel like he hates me right and i don't no. feel like an inconvenience on his life no. yeah. every time totally that, like agree. i need to like hey uh, i need to get an iv drip <sighs> okay like like it's just most doctors are i think unintentionally creating a bad experience because they're bombarded by a system that is not conducive for customer service in a way. Yeah. I mean, part of it, you know, I'm fortunate that, uh, I've somewhat created a niche space so I can, I don't have to necessarily subscribe to the strict regulations of being a hospital employee. Um, that being said, people don't get sick on a timely manner. They don't get sick nine to five. Usually, they try and power through during the day and then they succumb to what they've been experiencing later in the evening. So if you're going to get into my profession or any health service profession, you have to understand most of the time things are not going to be convenient for you. Mm. How you manage that, and this is for for any part of life, but how you approach that and manage it will ultimately reflect how well the outcome is received or perceived by the mm. other individual, right? Yeah. 
But at the same time, you have to make sure that you pay attention to yourself. And I've talked with you guys, you know, privately about, you know, an individual a girl I love dearly. And I, I, the balance there between work and building that relationship has led to, you know, tumultuous parts of my life. So I'm experiencing it. I don't have substance abuse issues clinically, but, uh, I think you know, we all have, I mean, I rely on coffee. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, but you know, in other aspects of my life, there's people that I, I truly, truly care about that. I've, I've noticed at times I do not pay enough attention to them. So mm. yeah, it's uh it's, it is not a profession that is, uh, associated with ease and lack of stress. But you, you I also notice you don't you don't play God, but you also practice what you proselytize 100%. in a way. Like if uh, folks go to uh, your Instagram and you know you're you're if you're prescribing exercise to people, you're exercising 100%. every day. 100%. If if you're prescribing eating healthfully, you're also eating healthfully okay. and and designing. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're designing the menu at Tokaya and then you're like, uh, I'm eating pizza while I'm figuring out no. how to make this keto bowl <laughs> for them. Yeah, right. Um, and you eat mostly plant based. Yep, whole food, plant based. Um, I'm not. A, I'm not against meat. I think uh, we have to have to appreciate that there's a lot of marketing uh, trickery that's yeah. introduced. There's a great book called real food, fake food. I'm, and I'm not, I'm blanking on who the author is, but essentially they identify these large consumable areas in, in the food space that are fraught with marketing inaccuracies mm-hmm. that ultimately individuals assume they're making a healthy decision when they're probably contributing to their health uh, disparity mm-hmm. because we are not providing on a national and global scale the opportunity for people to have an easy path following, you know, a healthy way of living. But for the most part, like you said, whole food, plant-based, lean meat, cold water fish, not a huge red meat guy, unless I know it's grass fed, grass finished. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately it's expensive. So it's very, uh, those instances are few and far between. Yeah. Belcampo is like one of my favorite burger places ever, but like a burgers, yeah. 15 bucks. Yeah. yeah, but it's I mean, it is one of my favorite burgers. All right. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, we, we had Rich Roll and Paul Saladino on the podcast uh, yeah. recently. And yeah. you know, Rich is a super athlete, vegan, plant based. And then Paul Saladino is a medical doctor, 100 percent carnivore, yeah. eats only ruminant animals and uh, also extremely healthy, extremely fit. Um, I thought he was like 30 years old, but he's in his 40s. And like so you see both yeah. of these guys and you're like, wait a minute. They're both, they seem so extreme, the two of them, uh, but maybe so, in, in some cases, they're not actually as extreme as, as, as you would think because they actually agreed on a whole lot of stuff like processed foods are, are, are sure. really bad, get enough sleep, circadian rhythm, sure. and, and they agree on, on the fundamentals of health. They just agree on how, they disagree on how to best get nutrition into their body, although they're both... Uh, they're both concerned about getting the right nutrients in sure. via different yeah. means. Yeah. Anyway, I'll go back to this article here. Uh, so he goes into more about doctors being drunk. But number three is I see dead people. <laughs> people make mistakes. And we're not going to vilify doctors because they're human. Most of my best friends are human. <laughs> 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 that said, 
98% of people die every year from mistakes, doctor. 98,000 people die every year. <laughs> a, 98%. 98% of people die every year, Ryan. That's a, that's a poor performance. <laughs> 98,000 people die every year from mistakes, I wonder mistakes, how that compares doctor. to like uh, alcoholism or car crashes or something, that 98,000 number. 98,000. I'd be depressed if I killed people all day by mistake, too. <laughs> Jesus. A mistake is defined as a death that could have been preventable. Either a mistake in surgery or a mistake in a prescription or some other weird mistake. One study showed that if you randomly pull 100 medical charts, 40 would contain evidence of doctor errors. Wow. Oh. We, would we trust a pilot who makes an error 40% of the time? The death can come in surprising forms, too. You know how you look at the chicken scratches on the prescription pad and you think, how can anyone read that? But for some reason, you trust that your pharmacist has this supernatural power to read doctor's handwriting. Well, he doesn't. <laughs> According to a study done by the National Academies of Science Institutes of Medicine, more than 7,000 deaths occur each year because the pharmacist couldn't decipher the prescription wow. and gave you an overdose of some weird chemotherapy pill instead of Viagra. <laughs> a good rule of thumb. If you can't read it, then your pharmacist can't read it either. Wow. Doc Green, whenever you call on a prescription for me, yeah, yeah, I think you do. You like call it in or. Yeah, uh, a couple things. I think we no. I think we made improvement with electronic medical records. So yeah. uh, that's been a uh, positive. Some people see that as a negative because it requires more documentation, which is the bane of our existence. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, I understand its necessity. Okay. <laughs> How do I want to approach this? When I was at Mayo Clinic, they have a, their own journal called Mayo Clinic Proceedings. And they published an article that said from 2000 to 2013, they looked at New England Journal of Medicine, looked at every medical intervention, surgical intervention that had been published as effective and then also had a follow-up article that demonstrated uh, lack of efficacy or some sort of harm from that medication procedure. Mm-hmm. And I believe the number was upwards of 70 or more percent of practitioners still prescribed or performed certain procedures or medications that had been deemed ineffective. And part of the reason that is, is one, and I, I'll be honest, like part of our, there's so much data that comes out on an annual basis. Mm. It is difficult to keep up. When I, my first day of medical school, our, our, one of our deans said the next cycle of medical students, you know, four years after we were done would have to consume 10,000 more pages of information because of advancement that had occurred. Wow. So fire hose, man. You're drinking from a fire hose. Individuals in our space, and in the reasons in this, this article, they said that people continue to perform or prescribe these certain uh, components of medicine was because, one, they weren't aware because there's so many journals, so much information. Two, they didn't care, so hopefully that's a small number of practitioners. Three, physicians are creatures of habit, which is not a bad thing unless you are afraid of deviating from what you were trained upon because you don't necessarily know the outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are some of the, some of the reasons why individuals have a difficult time. And it probably contributes to this, this statistic. I have a hard time believing people do things out of malice. Yeah. Um, yeah I agree with that. Of course. Yeah. So yeah, you know, ultimately it happens, it, you know, it happens. Sure. But um, there are more exceptions in the rule, yeah. Correct. Yeah. I think more people die from causes that are 
uh, less uh, malicious than than this article would. Oh yeah, but, yeah. I mean, and it, this it, is again satirical. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So. It, it's satirical, but it also it highlights some truths. It does. And, sure. and I think that's the best kind of satire. It's when when Andrew Schultz is up on stage talking about like the most absurd things, like uh, y- you. He's not actually making fun of the thing you think he's making fun of. He he's pointing at a, a greater sort of problem or sure. discomfort. Yeah, totally. And um, well, the next one is your doctor is probably obese. That is actually very very common. Yeah. Yeah. So common. there's nothing wrong with being obese, but it will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it will give you diabetes eventually. eventually. <laughs> and doctors know that obesity causes everything from diabetes to heart attacks to strokes yeah. and is linked to early onset Alzheimer's. And yet, doctors have a and yet doctors have a death wish. Fifty three percent of doctors, despite knowing all of this, are obese, mm-hmm. according to the Obesity Research Journal. And you put yourself in their care. Why should it matter if doctors are obese? In a sample of patients who are overweight, only 7% of the overweight doctors would diagnose their patients as overweight. Mm. Interesting. So it's, it's, it's almost like, well, if I'm, if I'm overweight, I can't say that you're overweight. Like, because then it's like, it's hypocritical. It's or something. shining the, the, it's holding the mirror up to myself in a way. I still feel weird about putting in a patient's chart, like obese. Mm. Is it's a it's a sensitivity thing, and ultimately it's it's something that I would love to eradicate from our nation and the world. But sure. yeah, I, there's a sensitivity to yeah. it. Well, here's the thing, though. Yeah. So yeah, calling someone obese is like you're not trying to insult them, but it is. It yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, though. So so people like Doc Green, he's part of this 90 percent of doctors who are not overweight will tell them they're obese. So only seven percent of of Overweight doctors will say you're obese. Ninety mm-hmm. percent of not overweight doctors will say it. So like th- that highlights something. If you're going to a doctor who is unhealthy, I had a doctor who smoked once, mm. um, and ironically, when I had chemical sensitivities, he he prescribed an inhaler. He said, "Oh, I think you have asthma," mm. and it's just like, wait a minute, like <laughs> why am I still going to this guy? Right. Um, and I will say that that. Um, by and large, the advice I've gotten, I got from doctors in my 20s. Now, I was looking for pills to fix things. I wasn't looking to change my lifestyle, and that's on me. But by and large, the, the prescriptions I got from doctors totally ruined my life. Um, 13 years of taking antibiotics straight sure. kills your gut microbiome. Sure, sure. And, and uh, if I would have just had that doctor say, hey, why don't you try this for a month? Remove dairy, soy, and gluten from your diet. See if that helps. Yeah, I would have said, okay. Mm-hmm. I would have listened to him, especially then uh, being impressionable. Now, he may have very well thought, well, there's no compliance here. So sure. you know what he can comply with? A pill. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that's, um, it, it, it has made my 30s much more, much more difficult. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, the last one here is going on vacation kills even more people. If, in medical circles, trust me, I'm a fake doctor. <laughs> <laughs> it's known as the July effect. So we're oh. actually recording this in July. So you know about this. <laughs> yeah, this is nothing to do with vacation. Okay. I'll, t- I'll tell you what this is about. Oh, interesting. Uh, in the UK, they refer to it as the August killing season. So this will be out in August. So but if you're listening to this in the UK, it's August killing season right now. <laughs> Don't get sick. Results show that patients get worse care in these months, particularly at teaching hospitals. Why? For the dumbest and most obvious reason. Doctor, doctors go on vacation in July. That means interns become residents and residents pretend to be the real doctors. So you're a doctor, a big, fat, sad, suicidal doctor. 
<laughs> and all you want to do is take some time off. But hey, you can't. Because when you take time off, more people die. Deaths from surgery and malpractice skyrocket in July. So as long as you can avoid getting sick or injured in the summertime, you should be fine. Or better yet, make sure you only get sick in areas where doctors might be vacationing. <laughs> Hawaii is a great place to get the plague in July. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about this. Uh, I, I didn't here's know about a, this until Yeah, this. here's the real truth. I graduated medical school on May 15th. Uh, by June 26th, I was taking care of patients out at Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. And I can promise you I did nothing academic in that six weeks, four to six weeks in between. So what the July effect truly is, is especially if you're at a teaching hospital, you have a whole new set of interns, residents that were previously junior residents that are now progressing to senior residency, taking on more responsibility and decision-making mm. that are, you know, like the interns, they've never truly treated a patient and had responsibility for their care. So 4th of July holiday is mayhem because you get these people that are young docs that are paralyzed by fear because they're like, what if I give this or what if I do this? And then you have older residents that are tired, frustrated, frustrated, excuse me, and they don't want to necessarily have to be teaching the younger guys because they want to get through their shift and get home. Right. So yes, July and August tend to be a period where nurses are significantly stressed because they're trying to correct for little things that they see. And these young docs, residents and otherwise, uh, are just trying to catch their stride and figure out what the heck is going on. So really, it's like rookie season. For it July is like August. rookie season. Okay. And yeah. a lot of the weight is on those nurses. I, my my uh, sister-in-law, she's an emergency room nurse. Sure. And like I I respect her and what she does for her vocation more than just about it. Like, I don't know how she's able to handle it. Yeah. It, Libby, Stressful. yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think she may be built for it, and she like I won't say enjoys it, but like finds it incredibly meaningful, mm -hmm. right? And and because she is genuinely helping people who are having true emergencies, like oh, you've been shot three times, sure, I can save your yeah. life. Oh, you yeah. blew your hand off with a firework, yeah. right? Yes, <laughs> I'll tell you what this article tells me is really it doesn't say to avoid doctors. For me, it says if you have the privilege of choosing your doctor, like do a really good job of choosing. A good doctor mm -hmm. and what I'll say is and I'm sure doc green will agree with this you know, there's nothing wrong with getting a second opinion if, if you don't feel good about the yeah. advice you're getting from someone that's still your life and your health care is in your hands you can rely on other people for advice and direction and help but ultimately your life is in your own hands yeah yeah I tell people frequently do your research and if you're going to spend money because healthcare currently is very expensive. I would make sure that you are patronizing a practitioner that is ideological, excuse me, ideologically aligned with what you believe is best for you. Mm -hmm. Because if you start spending money with individuals you're not confident with, you will end up spending more in the long run, mm -hmm. trying to correct for things that didn't work or things that actually, you know, made you progress uh, in a negative direction. So just take the time and find someone that you feel confident in because your overall likelihood of success, whether it's placebo effect or otherwise will be amplified. And then you'll, in the long run, uh, it's a better financial decision for you. Yeah. There's yeah. a funny ending to this article. I'm not gonna have time to read it, but Sean, if you put a link to this, uh, James Altucher 
article. There's a, there's a nice twist ending there. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I got one more article. We'll just read a few things from this. 27 health and nutrition tips that are actually evidence-based. So um, a few things here we've already talked about. Let's go through a few of them, and if you guys want to comment on it, feel free. Don't drink sugar calories. I would just say try to avoid drinking calories in general, especially right. if you're trying to, to lose weight. Is that Yeah, is that unless fair? it's a smoothie. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, I mean, I something think there's... Something with fiber and yeah, natural Yeah, something that has to have fiber. The juice conversation, is you could do a podcast on your own, but something that has fiber is reasonable. And for a lot of people, maintaining a healthy weight or trying to lose weight, you know, one of the things that they need to do is, is get calories in because depriving yourself of calories creates certain situations that are also uh, negative health promoting. But yeah, I think smoothies are probably a... Uh, exception to exception that. to that yeah. yeah eat nuts is another one here yeah, um, great. i would say unless you have an, a problem with oxalates like yeah, I say, do. nuts are uh they're inflammatory right um uh, depends. Or they can be yeah. depends okay yeah, yeah but for the most part nuts are reasonable good sources of fat cool. yeah for, for for most average humans uh, it, they're uh they're very healthy. So yeah. oxalates, when you have a problem with oxalates, that means that you get inflamed from oxalates. Is that, am I understanding that? Uh, well, you can develop kidney stones. Oxalates are in a lot of different plants, basically. Okay. Some, some people like Saladino would call them anti, anti-nutrients. Okay. Um, we won't get into that whole conversation <laughs> today. Um, avoid processed junk food. Eat real food instead. Yeah, uh, simple yeah, enough. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what you were talking about earlier, with the, if it's in a package... Um, it's probably, I mean, there are exceptions, obviously sure. you buy some almonds in a package, sure. but that's not the same thing as packaged processed foods. Correct. Yeah. But if it's, uh, you know, we, we talked to uh, rich roll about this. You, you want to shop it toward the exterior of yeah. the whole foods, not the interior, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Sure. You want, you want to find your, your fruits and your vegetables and, and your organic grass fed meats. You, you want to shop toward the exterior because everything inside is sort of packaged, right? It's mm-hmm. always blowing my mind. Like if you go to a, <clears throat> a, traditional grocery store, not a Whole Foods or Erewhon, there's always a small section that says like healthy foods. <laughs> and you're just like, what are, what do people look at that and say like, <laughs> if I'm not there, then what am I buying? And then yeah. too, like people are always like, oh, you're one of those healthy eaters. Like, yeah. Well, what, are, <laughs> like, what are you? What's right. the alternative? Yeah. Right. Because if oh, I was like, yes, I was like, I do all this unhealthy stuff. People would be like, well, why do you do the unhealthy stuff? And it's the same thing with eating. Like it's, it's such a simple That's answer. just like people projecting their own like i could never eat healthy so now i'm gonna make fun of you for it but yeah that's crazy here's one i don't think i agree with uh and we'll put a link to all 27 of these in the show notes drink some water i agree with that part for sure i'm drinking water right now Mm -hmm. filtered water um especially before meals i don't know that i necessarily agree with that part you don't want to dilute your stomach acid a whole bunch so i can see i understand where they're coming from Mm mm-hmm Stomach primarily has a lot of things in it, but there are two types of receptors that respond to a food bolus or or someone consuming food. One is a density receptor, so caloric density, and the other is stretch. We tend to consume foods on average that are very calorically dense, and they don't necessarily stimulate that same stretch receptor in the stomach, similar to if you're eating a lot of vegetables that are not necessarily calorically dense, but they are volume dense. Hmm. So a lot of people end up overeating because they're not stimulating both of the mechanisms that the body has to... Because they don't feel satiated then. They don't feel satiated. So I've heard from individuals that have had success maintaining healthy weight that if you are hungry, 
one of the things that you can do is consume a decent amount of water because there's also a likelihood that you're dehydrated mm -hmm. and your hunger stimulus will be muted a bit. Not that you shouldn't eat, but I suspect if you were to measure the caloric intake for those individuals that consumed a healthy amount of water prior to a meal, that they would end up consuming fewer calories per meal. And depending on the individual, that may or may not be helpful. So Correct. I think that's a multifaceted answer. Yeah. Uh, but what I think about what, the, what about the diluting the stomach acid though? Is that, is that a thing? I mean, I haven't seen a solid literature study that says, you know, your stomach pH is around like two or three yeah. and that if you drank water now, all of a sudden it's like four or five, six or yeah. seven, <clears throat> essentially neutral. So I'm not convinced that that is true. That may be more, um, Theory than a, yeah, theoretical. Gotcha. Contribution. Okay. Uh, don't overcook or burn your meat. Um, yes. Yeah. That, th but that's what makes the meat taste so good. Yes. It's those charred little bits. What makes the meat taste good is the fat in the meat. It's not the. <laughs> it's not it's, the char. It's not the char. Uh, we know that uh, over overheating oil, charring, smoking uh, introduces a lot of carcinogenic components mm -hmm. into whatever food it is. Not so just me, but you burn anything. your broccoli. At oh, same you know, like the broccoli Bell Campbell. That's like nice. That's and not burnt though. That's deep okay. fried. Okay. Yeah. That's right. a, yeah. That's <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, no, that's true. We know that, that the smoking, the charring, the cooking on super high heat, ultimately what it does, there's a, a couple of different things, but one introduces carcinogens into the food substance. But two, when you cook anything at a very high heat, you know, often past its smoking point, you're changing the chemical conformation of the beneficial nutrients that are in that food. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be problematic and deleterious to someone's health. So that's where the raw vegans are like, oh yeah, we're doing the right thing because we're eating food as it's consumed, similar to, you know, no animal cooks its food. It just eats whatever it eats. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, you can still cook heat steam. You just have to be a little bit more conscious of how you're how you're doing it. Well, that's Josh, the thing when what we, does deleterious mean? <laughs> bad. Oh, okay. Um, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> when we had a uh, rich roll here and Paul Saladino, the thing I told rich is like, your diet is far more delicious than Saladino's. Like, cause he, he agrees with some of these things, but like he's also eating like raw organ meat. Uh, you know, he eats raw four ounces of raw liver oh, every day. Man. That, and I imagine you eventually get used to it, but no, no, you don't. <laughs> it, you swallow it whole like a giant pill, basically. Wow. Um, now, to be fair, a cow's liver is probably the most nutrient dense food that you sure. can eat. That or salmon roe, yeah, maybe yeah. the tongue too, right? Isn't that one of the considered kind of nutrient dense? No, no? okay, no, and organs. Really. It's muscle liver, meat. kidney. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. It, so, so you don't get a whole bunch of nutrients from from muscle meat. You get calories and fat, and yeah. so you get the macronutrients. But the micronutrients, yeah, the kidneys, the heart, okay. The brain, there hasn't been a whole lot of studies on it, but there's, you know, the, the DHA, the EPA, everything that's in. So he, Paul Saladino, eats raw brain, oh lamb's brain. Wow. Um, now, he doesn't recommend that for everyone either, though. But, like, when when it comes to, like, uh, not needing to supplement anything, yes, it, it is the sort of most nutrient-dense bioavailable but also not very tasty food. No. Mm. Um, and so what I really like about Doc Green or about Bex, like the, you, you two are two of the healthiest people I know, mm -hmm. but it has to do with balance, right? Uh, yeah. I see you, you're, bo you're both, neither one of you are vegans. You have some animal sure. uh, products, but you also have healthy gut microbiomes. You rarely get sick. 
Um, although as soon as you have kids, you'll get sick more frequently. Um, <laughs> to the kids, next yeah, test. Yeah, kids are a bit off at the moment. But yeah, we'll yeah, um, yeah. You know, Bex was that way. Like until uh, until she had Ella, like she would yeah. never get sick. And then the kids, like they just bring everything into the house and germs. Yeah. But mm. but I, she's still one of the healthiest people that I know. And it's all about balance in, in the diet. Yeah. Um, there's a medical idiom that says. And it's a very common mistake amongst young medical practitioners is, is if you hear hoof steps behind you or hoof beats behind you, think horses, not zebras, right? So we're, we're inundated with all these rare diseases that you have to know for your board exams. And so whenever anyone presents with something similar, you're like, it's like house, like that person has this rare disease. But at the end of the day, common things are common, right? Mm. And what we are struggling with locally, nationally, globally, is there are a lot of people who just don't have any idea where to start or what they, they can be compliant with that will ultimately improve our global health, right? So I appreciate Rich Roll, Dr. Saladino, all those people because they need to do the work that they're doing because there are certain people that would benefit. Right. But at the end of the they're day- They're outliers, they're edge cases. Correct, what can we do to help them greater majority of people. And that's what I'm trying to do. That's what we're trying to do with Monarch Athletic Club is say, hey, this will probably work for a large amount of people. Mm -hmm. And if so, we can reduce what we're spending to mitigate lifestyle associated chronic disease. And at that point, you can allocate those resources to things that we, we really need to take care of, you know, mental health, education, arts, infrastructure, whatever. And I think we would be amazed how our society changes when a large majority of people just don't have to wake up every day and evaluate, do I feel well, do I not? What can I or can I not do on a daily basis? So um, yeah, like to your point, I try to, I don't wanna say shoot for the middle, but we tend to get caught up in the minutia and trying to figure out that supplement or that test to figure out like what gene mutation do I have? Yeah. At the end of the day, man, we don't even do common. We don't, we don't do the simple stuff. Right. 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 No. And, and, and there are people who are educated like me, like I have the yeah. MTHFR gene yeah. mutation sure. and, and, and so I like don't produce glutathione like I should and I don't detox like I should. Like there are these things where there are people who are edge cases, but the middle is actually 97% of the population totally. or maybe 98% are omnivores, totally. right? And so, yes, there will be a few people who are vegan. There'll be essentially no one who's carnivore except a, a, a few outliers. And by the way, that diet has helped some people with some significant autoimmune sure. issues. Sure. And, and we have to respect that. Um, but then the other 98% of the people who are in the middle, then it's like, well, what is most optimal in the middle totally. it's, it's not junk food it's what what you, you talked about michael pollan before what, what does he say eat real food eat mostly real food. plants not not too much yeah. yeah yeah and and so i think that is the the sort of prescription there yeah. and uh if you want to deviate from that because you are an edge case then you know plan according now now here's the other problem though we're seeing more and more edge cases though sure Be mm. because of over prescription of antibiotics or accutane or or um uh, changes well, the way uh, how we make our food and produce our food. Yeah, changes yeah. to our environment in general. So yeah. we're we're actually seeing more and more edge cases, and uh, so these smaller segments are beginning to help larger percents of the population. Yeah, I just I, from where I sit, I don't know if just accepting the fact that we're shifting to more of a, a radical contingent of individuals with health issues mm -hmm. and ignoring 
the day-to-day simple things that we can get people to do Mm -hmm. is a way to successfully heal us as a nation or as a global community, right? Um, I talk to people a lot too about lifestyle modification studies that Mm -hmm. are done in clinical settings. They work, they're effective, they've been published. The hard part is you have to get someone to go to a clinical setting. Not everyone lives near a academic center. You have to have them remain compliant and often that times requires financial compensation for Mm -hmm. them to do so. So we know these simple things work. They've been modeled. What we have failed to do is create something that can be applied to the general public. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do with, with Monarch. And then hopefully the necessity, the need, the stress and strain placed on those individuals that are treating the outlier cases will not expand they still need to do their work. I totally, I completely agree, and they do great work. But we can then perhaps limit what we have to try to do to compensate for mistakes that are made on the you know the basic foundation of our day to day life. Indeed. Well, we've got one more thing here. Then yep. you can read the other twenty, the rest of the twenty-seven here. Take vitamin D three if you don't get much sun exposure. Now. We're fortunate enough to live in a place where we do have access to a lot of sun, yeah. even yeah. in the winter, although you don't get as much vitamin D in, in the winter here, even even when the sun is out. But, um, you know, we're, we're from Dayton, Ohio. You're from Chicago. Not a lot of sun in Not the winters sun, there. Yeah. And um, so taking vitamin D3, do you typically recommend that? Totally reasonable. Uh, the iteration is... Vitamin D, when orally consumed, does not absorb well without a vitamin K cofactor or cotransporter. So there are vitamin D supplements you can get at your grocery store, GNC, but unless it has a vitamin K, or most commonly K2. um, It has to be in the same It has to be in the same component, and we can talk about supplements at some point, but... um, That alone will allow for greater bioavailability of the vitamin D. Ultimately, getting outside for 20 or 30 minutes, you know, unexpo- or, uh, complete exposure to sun is probably equally beneficial. Obviously, uh, you know, skin health concerns are something to consider. But if you can just get outside and get sun, light, vitamin D from its natural source, that's optimal. If you are going to do a supplement, make sure the D has a K component. Um, I tend to prescribe for patients sublingual drops because I think they absorb better into the venous plexus or network of veins underneath the tongue. Mm. And we know that vitamin D stimulates melatonin production. For instance, if you're out, out if you're outside all day, people tend to get sleepy towards the end of the day. That is not a mysterious phenomenon that's evolutionarily built into our system so that when our ancestors were working outside all day, by the time the sun was going down, their melatonin production had risen which allowed them to sleep, and then they did the same thing the next day. So if you're going to do vitamin D, I tend to tell people later in the day, probably before you go to bed, Mm. to help stimulate that melatonin production. Sounds good. we got some surprise questions here. Podcast, Sean. Um, Tanya says, what are Dr. Green's thoughts on EMF and artificial light exposure? So those are two different things, right? So artificial light exposure is like the blue light from your TV because it's 10.30 p.m. and Letterman's coming on, or I don't even know what comes on late at night anymore. (laughs) But like uh, that is bad for us. Correct. And we don't real. I mean, I never realized that until a few years ago. I I read Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, the blue light, that's a bad thing, huh? And now we're seeing like the blue blocking sun, sun or 
I don't even know, sunglasses, blue blocking glasses. Yeah. Uh, Bex wears those around the house now. Yeah. Um, Me too. Yeah. Mariah got me wearing them and it makes a huge difference. Like I'll put them on at like eight, nine o'clock at night. And I definitely notice a difference when I go to bed at like 10 or 1030 for sure. So artificial light. Yeah. Uh, definitely problematic helping people get to sleep or fall into a successful sleep pattern quickly. In brief, the blue light activates a receptor in the eye called melanopsin. The melanopsin receptor then stimulates cognitive function, cognitive activity. So it delays an individual's ability to mo- progress through the you know uh, cognitive sleep wave pattern. Mm. So the closer you are exposing yourself to blue light to the time you want to go to bed, the more delayed your descent into a healthy deep sleep will become until you get literally so tired that it, it doesn't really matter. But at that point, you've done yourself a great disservice for all the days prior that you didn't get healthy sleep and your body literally is just is taking over. But yeah, yeah so I'm minimizing that blue light exposure at least 30 minutes, ideally about 60 minutes before when you want to go to bed it tends to be the most effective uh, in terms of helping promote healthy sleep. The yeah. thing I try to do is when the sun is down, I try to avoid blue light. Sure. Um, yeah, you can set like your computer to, uh, to to night mode where it takes all the blue light out. Same with your phone. Yeah, your yeah. phone. T- uh, you can, some TVs you can set to do that. And those glasses, like they're pretty affordable. I mean, you can get them for like 10 bucks. I mean, it's not... It's not like you're you got to make a, a huge pair. investment. Let's find a pair and put it in the show notes for folks if they're interested yeah. in, in at least taking a look at that. Cat says, "How can a poor appetite?" Oh wait, we actually before we get to that, we didn't talk about EMF. So EMF, uh, can you talk a little bit about EMF exposure? Yeah. So I mean, here's the thing: the entire globe, the world, has an electromagnetic field. Uh-huh. So saying e- all EMF is bad is not entirely accurate. The whole purpose of grounding which is essentially walking barefoot on the earth and allowing the magnetic uh, field to essentially like realign. Now, how do I do that? Like, let's say I wanted because I don't ever do any grounding, although I know like scientifically, we were talking to Rich Roll about this. You you weren't here for that, but Rich Roll sleeps outside. Oh, wow. He he has a nice house out in Calabasas, wherever he is. Yeah. uh, Malibu, whatever. And he sleeps in a tent outside. Wow! Um, so because li- it's the best sleep. Bex is camping with Ella uh, tonight and last night, and like th- they get the best sleep when they're when they're doing that because yeah. there's some grounding. Now I'm here in Los Angeles. Sure. I live in a um, apartment building. Yeah. How how do I how would I do, do grounding? So effectively. Yeah, there's a couple of ways. One, allowing yourself to get to a space that's natural earth, taking your shoes off, and just walking around Mm -hmm. so if that's on a mountain on a hike up on Runyon and this is not like woo woo stuff no 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 it's 100% like the Japanese have been doing this for a long time it's called uh, forest bathing or shirin roku Mm -hmm. I believe is the term Um, and there's a couple other benefits to that but essentially it's just getting out in nature taking your shoes off walking barefoot connecting with the earth and allowing because at the end of the day all we are is cells that have an electronic charge right and Hmm. you know there's a healing component of the natural magnetic field of the earth mm-hmm. that allows for reduction in stress, reduction in anxiety, um, and things like that for individuals, for whatever reason, if they can't build in time where they can just literally walk barefoot on the ground, there are grounding pads. I sleep with one and I, I fail to remember, I think it's Dr. Gupta or Dr. Panda. It's a, I'll get you guys the information. It's yeah, a, we'll a, a, gr- a link to it in the show. It's notes. a grounding pad that you literally just put over your mattress. Mm-hmm. It, 
you don't really notice it's there, but it essentially uh, produces a similar uh, grounding experience with the uh, reduction in unnecessary EMF outside what is truly coming from the earth mm -hmm. to allow you to find grounding throughout the night when wow. you sleep. So um, I think, yeah, I paid about $200 for it and I've, I, I sleep great. I might try that out because, you know, Bex yeah. has improved her sleep markedly over the last couple of years ever since we got these aura rings yeah. and, and we track uh, sleep. But she's done it, it was not there was not one silver bullet, right? It was like Correct. she has removed all coffee, so all caffeine from her diet. Um, she, the blue light thing, um, not exercising late at night for her. Mm -hmm. that, that was a, a thing that really mm -hmm. complicated her sleep. But then also we found out like and she's tested this. You turn off the Wi-Fi and her, her oh, deep yeah. sleep is better. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we turn off the Wi-Fi. Now, we live in an apartment building, so there's Wi-Fi probably in sure. other apartments. But yeah. the one closest to us is turned off. Yeah. And mm -hmm. we were uh, staying at her parents' house in Minnesota a couple of years ago. And there was Wi-Fi right under the bed. And she didn't know it. Oh, yeah. And she couldn't sleep all night. And couldn't figure it out. And then I, I found it a couple nights later, unplugged it, and she was like, I got the best sleep. Oh, yeah. yeah and sure. it's it's strange how, because it doesn't affect me the same way it affects sure. her. So we all, we're all different. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Keeping your phone outside of your room, not yeah. using it as an alarm clock. Um, Airplane mode, all that. Yeah. And that this is probably the area that I am not the best uh, uh, individual to follow because uh, for whatever reason, I, I tend to do okay exposing myself to blue light uh -huh. closer to bedtime. But in this area, do not follow my guidance, but don't watch me because I'm not <laughs> the best uh, example of this one. So, so, so Fair grounding enough. is, uh, you got to find some grass yeah. bare, barefoot. Yeah. 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 So some, some sort of wa ground. walking barefoot on cement isn't going to ground you as well as getting no, in sir. nature. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. All right. Uh, Kat says, how do, how can a poor appetite be improved? I wish I had that problem. <laughs> uh I, unless poor means like i'm just uh i always want to eat um but no like that that is a, a real thing where there are people sure. who struggle with not being able to uh to eat i mean for for me i i most of what i eat is healthy but calorically dense correct is, is that is that a good recommendation <clears throat> i think uh an individual needs to speak with someone whether it's a physician nutritionist or otherwise to understand why their appetite is poor mm -hmm. because you need to eat. That is not mm -hmm. a selective uh, skill or task that you know the population has to follow, but everyone needs to eat. What I have found with a lot of individuals, especially I uh, have a practice called the Health Bar in West Hollywood that's you know weight management, and what we find for a lot of individuals that struggle with weight management, whether it's gaining or losing, when you look at their metabolic rate, their basal metabolic rate, so how many calories they just burn existing in a 24-hour period, those that don't eat a lot or have limited what they consume tend to have a lower metabolic rate oh. because essentially what you're doing is telling your body, like, this is the amount of nutri nutrition or nutrients we can get in, and you become accustomed to that. And if it's not a substantial enough to sustain a high level of activity, your, meta your basal metabolic rate drops, mm -hmm. which in theory would then reduce your appetite or hunger stimulus because you're just not churning through calories mm -hmm. as effectively or efficiently as someone like I do. I burn about 6,000, 6,500 calories a day. Wow. I'm very active in work and otherwise. So if I want to maintain my weight, I need to be slamming food in. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I try and tell patients, and this is for everyone, your metabolism is like a fire. So if you want a fire to burn hot, mm-hmm. you have to continue to put wood in. Same thing with your metabolism. If you want it to you know, keep working, one, yes, you have to be active, but two, you have to be feeding it because reactions in your body that allow for healing require energy. And if you don't provide them that energy, you are going to find sources for that so your body can heal itself because that's what it does. But ultimately it will come from muscle breakdown or, you know, something that is ultimately a negative health outcome. You only want to feed it if you're using that fuel though. I mean, that's the the, the, the problem. Like again, the guy in the break room who's, who's just eating the full pizza, but like you're not burning that pizza watching Netflix. Correct. I think for in this instance particular, it would be a, a thorough evaluation of like, what do you do on a daily basis and why don't you, necessarily have a strong appetite because mm-hmm. there, there has to be a reason for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just prescribing to, I have a poor appetite. I don't know if that's a sufficient answer. There's gotta be a reason. So what perhaps is the I'm, underlying reason? hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jen says, I'm trying to have a better sleep pattern. People always say, go to bed at the same time every night, but they don't have to work early 6am shifts like I do. Um, yeah. I mean, still good advice though. I mean, to go to bed at the same time. I mean, even if she works at 6 a.m., what she's she's got to get up at 4 a.m. or maybe 5 a.m. to get there at 6 a.m. And yeah, maybe you have to go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. And that's fine. Yeah. I, I, that's when I go to bed. I yeah. go to bed at 8. Uh, but I'll tell you, that's one of the things that has helped me improve my sleep is going to bed at the same time every night. I try to I get in bed at 9.30. I usually fall asleep by 10 or 10.30. Yeah, you can go to bed earlier. My, my daughter goes to bed around 7, and sometimes I'll go to bed around 7.05. Sure. Um, <laughs> But I like to get up early as well. I get up early and right. And it's just, it's about preference. Now, she's saying she has to get up at 6. Now, there are a couple things you can do here. One is um, you can also change your job. Ultimately, if you're working a third shift job for 20 years, it's going to take years off of your life. I'm mm, sure you've agreed. seen all the Yeah, the there's a lot, of, lot of studies about third shift. I think for this individual in particular, uh, the next question would be, what is your sleep hygiene? Sleep hygiene is a, a medically relevant field. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple things that any individual can do that they can take away from this discussion. One is temperature of your room, right? So 69 degrees, if you can control it, mm-hmm. is you know, 69, 70 degrees optimal temperature. Make sure everything is very, very dark because you don't want outside light to stimulate you know, through your eyelids, like we were talking about, that those melanopsin, yeah, blue yeah. light receptors. Um, white you have note. receptors not just in your eyes, yeah, because I'll wear a face mask, but like you have it in your ears, yeah. your, your skin yeah. is, yeah. is a so photoreceptor. You want to try and get your room as dark as possible. White noise, eliminating ambient noise from the outside that will cause you to cognitively become more alert, whether you realize it or not, and shift you from REM or deep sleep into more of a an alert state. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another thing. We talked about the pattern. Um, and then two, using your bed only for sleep, uh, essentially. So, you know, if you have a partner, perhaps designating an area for intimacy, or if you are going to have intimacy, um, you know, making sure Kitchen that you, counter. yeah, <laughs> get creative. How did you it. know? Get creative with it. But, uh, you know, the bed should be for sleep. It shouldn't be for work. It shouldn't be for anything else. It's not so for, for TV either. Get no. the TV out of the bed. Correct. Yeah. So creating a space that's safe, comfortable, temperature controlled there's the white noise component eliminating like we talked about those sources of emf or other thing and i suspect in addition to that similar pattern of going to bed around the same time every night and getting up around the same time every morning Mm -hmm. you will find wakefulness is easier to achieve as well as a 
satisfying and nourishing night's sleep. Now yeah. the next person, Slow and Simple Living, has a similar question, but it's about insomnia. So mm. um, I know Bex suffered with insomnia. So insomnia is the inability to go to sleep, Correct. or you know, waking up in the middle of the night and staying uh, staying awake. Um, are uh, does that have to do with melatonin production? Or I mean, I think we use insomnia loosely. Right. So but if someone actually has like legitimate yeah. insomnia, but usually yeah. that would be like a symptom of something else going uh, on. Yeah. You I, again, a, a better evaluation with a health practitioner to try and figure out what is contributing to that insomnia. Because there's multiple reasons why people have yeah, yeah, you know, insomnia. and there may be a valid medical reason that requires. Uh, medicinal intervention but i think for most people that lack of ability to sleep contributes to societal or lifestyle factors mm -hmm. that cause stress anxiety you know something both physically or mentally that prohibits an individual uh from achieving that effective sleep yeah uh, so the thing you think you have you may not have you may not actually have insomnia you have insomnia symptoms because right. of the environment that we are all yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. So try, yeah, try uh, eliminating blue light. Uh, yeah. Try drinking coffee only, you know, before 10 a.m. I mean, there are a lot of little things you can do. I'll tell you one thing that ha has helped me and I noticed is um, going from like hot to cold, like sure. doing, uh, whether it's the sauna, like those are the best nights of sleep I get are the days or the nights after uh, I go to the Russian bathhouse because it's that going from super hot to super cold. And sometimes, too, like if I'm having trouble sleeping, you know, nights back to back, like I will go out of my way to get in the shower and do some hot and then 30 seconds of cold, 30 seconds yeah. of hot. What people have to appreciate, too, um, I, I failed to mention with the nighttime habits, not eating within about two hours before you go to bed. Yeah. There's a reason for that. So sympathetically, fight or flight, so sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, parasympathetic, vagus nerve, rest and digest. They're more commonly known now. If you are hot or if you have eaten a meal within roughly two to three hours before you go to bed, your sympathetic nervous system essentially revs up to help control temperature. There's a component that it's coordinating digestion. So your core body temperature actually elevates. Mm -hmm. And then you're trying to sleep and your body finds rest most effectively when your core temperature is relatively lower, which is why temperature in the room is important. So you're effectively fighting against yourself and its natural process if you're too hot or if you've eaten too soon before you go to bed, which contributes to why you find a benefit from taking a cold shower before you go to bed because mm -hmm. you're helping your body get into a state that it can achieve successful relaxation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Those are all things that are common, and I'm sure if this individual just goes through those those simple steps and says, okay, hey, how am I doing A through E, mm -hmm. they likely will find better rest. And if they do all those things and they do not, then perhaps a sleep study, medical evaluation. There mm -hmm. are sleep physicians that this is literally all they do would be a reasonable intervention. But starting with those simple lifestyle modifications mm -hmm. will most likely be beneficial. I'll tell you too, like getting something like the aura ring or some kind of sleep tracker that helps you identify your good nights of sleep versus bad nights of sleep. Like those little things that you yeah. do, you will find out with the data that says, yes, I am getting better sleep when I don't eat two hours before bed. Or yes, I'm getting even better sleep when I do cold showers before sure. I go to bed. Yeah. yeah. And I would say check out Dr. Walker's book, why we sleep. I think that'll help point you in the right direction. Uh, Keto Undone says, what impact does fasting actually have on the brain? And do you recommend fasting? Yeah, like I do intermittent fasting 
kind of naturally. Is that is that yeah. a good thing? I think intermittent fasting is great. I think we're finally catching up in terms of the scientific literature to support that. Mm-hmm. Uh, many cultures have done it for a long period of time. Humans as a species did it, whether we knew it, we were doing it or not. Without um, access to food, you're automatically food. It's interesting, like Ramadan, that holiday, I think that's like a, a, like a, a Muslim holiday, mm-hmm. if I'm correct. Yeah. But like they, yeah, they basically eat uh, before the sun comes up and yeah. then they'll eat. It's kind of a reverse fast yeah. because you should probably <laughs> be eating when the sun is out because. Yeah. Circadian in, rhythm. Circadian rhythm. Okay. Um, but yeah, intermittent fasting. So a lot of people will do 16 hours fast, eight hours of eating. I was at a conference recently. The most up-to-date literature I have seen recommends about 12 to 14 hours of a fast tends to be the most effective. So essentially 12 to 14 hours between your last meal of a day and your first meal of the next day. Well, that's good news. It gives you more time to Yeah, more time to eat. Uh, it doesn't include water, so you can drink water, things like that. But you know, if you go to bed around nine or ten, and then you don't eat breakfast the next day until nine or ten, most people can achieve that. And if you're properly hydrated, drinking water again, you're not fighting that hunger stimulus, and it's pretty easy to do. And on from a diet perspective, obesity, diabetes, things like that, most people when they limit their food intake window, even down to twelve hours, tend to consume fewer calories, mm-hmm. uh, which for the most part leads to healthier health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's super beneficial with regards to his question. What does it do for the brain? Not a ton of data on humans, Mm -hmm. partially because studies on preventive medicine, intermittent fasting don't profit any entity. So it's hard to get money to conduct the studies that are, thorough, randomized, controlled, things like that. They ha- I saw someone selling a fasting bar recently, and it's like, just wait a minute. You know, wait, well, is, this just is a, just marketing like a, nonsense. Yeah. It's just a bottle of water. Yeah. No, it's it's <laughs> like, well, nothing yeah, it's, it's just like when you hear about like the Bulletproof coffee, like I'm still fasting. No, you're not. You just had 800 calories. Uh, right, yeah. right. Uh, but there are mouse models that have shown fasting has a significant preventive benefit for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, these mm-hmm. cognitive issues that, that cool. many Americans are experiencing mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. One, fasting improves mitochondrial efficiency. Mitochondria is the energy producing unit of the cell. The more effective and efficient your cell is, the better it's able to heal things that have been damaged or recognize that damage has occurred. So essentially by fasting, you initiate your body into somewhat of a self-cleansing period where it can identify things that are not as functional as they need to be because they don't do well without the excess nutrition that the typical American tends to supplement itself with. And you can get rid of those poor producers, bring in new cells that are healthier, more efficient, can be healing. So... If you're looking in the medical literature, scientific data space, there's not a ton of, you know, validated information, but there are mouse models. And I think there are societies and cultures that have fasted again, purposefully or not, that have demonstrated reduced risk of disease, greater longevity, reduced cognitive dysfunction. So I'm a huge proponent of it. I do it. I recommend it to everyone. Yeah, I feel I, better when I when I yeah. when I do intermittent fasting. I totally agree, and I've seen a lot of things, you know, articles in general that talk about when we eat less, we live longer. And I don't yeah. know if that has to do with fasting, but just in general, like the less, you know, kind of. Yeah. It's a relatively general statement, but yeah. you know, a lot of blue zones or areas that have individuals that live a very long time with low incidence of disease mm-hmm. tend to be a little bit more on the calorically restricted side. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's n- absolutely necessary, especially. 
um, is they've been doing that for generations right. upon generations. But right. I so think a lot of it could be genetic. Like, is it a correlation right. or a causation? Correct. Like, so, yeah. um, but I suspect, I know if you introduce fasting, you tend to consume less calories. So, so what about like, uh, let's say you take one day a week to fast, you know, 24 hours or uh, juice fasting. Like, can you speak about those two ways of fasting? So, um, a periodic 24-hour fast, not unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Some people just don't tolerate it well. So I tend to recommend things that I think my patients will comply with, which if you're sleeping six to eight hours, it's basically over half of your fasting period. Yeah. So I think that tends to be easier to implement in an individual's day-to-day. I guess, like, do you see more benefit from doing a juice fast? I think fast daily intermittent fast tends to be the most long-term benefit. greater benefit. Okay. And juice, you have to be careful, too, because what type of juice is it sugar-laden? Right. And we know you we You can't need, just be drinking glasses of orange juice. Right. right. And we know we need fiber to help with gut health, right? And mm. ultimately, 70% of your immune system, 60 to 70% of your neurotransmitters that help with mood come from the gut. Mm. So if you're not feeding those beneficial gut bacteria, you will notice as you have experienced that mood fluctuates, immune system fluctuates. So I tend to prefer people actually eating things Mm. and whether it's a timed window or not, you know, I think long-term that will provide a greater benefit for a larger amount of people. I was told, or I read this somewhere a while back that when you do a juice fast, what you're doing is, is you're giving your body the opportunity to use energy elsewhere other than digestion. Is, sure. is there any validity to that? Perhaps. Okay. Um, <laughs> again, I think if you look at models and civilizations that have been participating in these activity for millennia, um, I tend to prescribe, even though there's not hard, fast scientific data, but essentially a longitudinal case study to say, hey, this is what these people have been doing. These are their health outcomes. Perhaps we can learn from that and add some of the science that is being uncovered and, and published and try and create a more effective program long-term. Yeah, that's that's good news because uh, it means that you don't have to do these juice fasts or uh, 24-hour fasts. Intermittent fasting yeah. is is uh, sounds like it just is almost as effective or as effective. None so, of the healthiest people I know do juice, juice fasts. Mm, I, I was just point. thinking of that right now. Like, whether it is Saladino, Ritual, Bex, Doc Green, like yeah. I, I don't know anyone who is healthy mm. who does juice fast. Now, I, most of them actually do some form of intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. Some people even do the extreme side where the, the OMAD movement, you're familiar with that? I'm familiar. I'm not yeah. Yeah. well educated on w- it. One meal a day. Um, and I mean, that makes sense to me from a productivity standpoint. Like I, I, I've actually done that before because of my digestion issues. It actually makes it easier for me to just have one. If I can get enough calories, if I can get my 24, 2500 calories in, mm. in one meal, that's pretty difficult. Or two feeding periods a day. That works really well with me with intermittent fasting, 11 a.m. and around 5 or 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. And then I'm essentially, I don't even know I'm fasting the other time mm-hmm. because if I eat 11 a.m., that's essentially my, my breakfast. I'm breaking the fast. I'm not hungry. I found, I don't know if you've experienced with your, with your patients, Doc, but after about three days of, because of, we're so programmed, like breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Here's my toast and my Cheerios, my giant glass of sugary orange juice. Yeah. It's Brutal. terrible. Yeah. Um, and, and Lobbyists. That's what makes that popular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I found that, that yeah. after about three days, like you get pretty quickly acclimated to like, oh yeah, I don't actually need this terrible breakfast I was eating. Sure. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> that carbohydrate, simple carbohydrate load earlier in the day will most definitely lead to a sugar crash later because mm-hmm. your glycemic response is 
you know, through the roof. So, uh, breakfast I think is important. I don't really care when it is because you're right. It's breaking the fast, but ultimately emphasizing higher protein component, good fat component stuff with fiber. It's slower digested will provide you longer term energy and ultimately greater health benefit versus slamming in things that get absorbed quickly, push your, you know, blood glucose levels through the roof. Your insulin response goes up insulin, cortisol, things like that. One insulin is a fat storage molecule. So that tends to be problematic. And then Mm -hmm. when you have that crash, you still need to produce energy. Cortisol goes up. Cortisol is inflammatory. It's a cascade and it's a negative feedback cycle. So I agree with you choosing a breakfast. It's okay to have some carbohydrate in there, certainly, but greater emphasis on fat and protein Mm -hmm. uh, is what I recommend. Yeah. Well, Dr. Green, we want to encourage folks to- uh, You're awesome, man. To visit you. Uh, They can follow you on Instagram. We'll put a link to your handle in the show notes. Where else should they go to to find Monarch and everything else? So uh, Monarch Athletic Club is monarchweho.com. Okay, we'll put Um, a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then feel free to reach out to me, whether it's, uh, you know, Instagram or whatever. I'm happy to provide my email if that's reasonable. But um, anyone who has any questions at any time, feel free to reach out. I may not get back to you right away, but I've benefited from the advice and mentorship of many people along the way. So I'm trying to pass that along uh, in whatever uh, modality I'm able to. So don't feel free to reach out, ask questions. Um, Happy to help. My favorite, my favorite work of his is the interview he did for the eggplant emoji movie. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's been scrubbed. from. Uh, Oh, did they get rid of it? Ah, uh, nothing's no. ever. Uh, nothing's no. ever <laughs> gone. <laughs> All right, Doc Green, we appreciate you. We yeah. love you. Thank yeah, you man. so much. All right, y'all. Love people, use things. We'll see you next time. See ya. Don minimalists. <laughs>